welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright. I am joined once again by frequent guest co-host, Kathleen Vandewill. Kathleen! Hi! So glad to be here again to talk about some more Faust. Faust, we promised you all when you stuck with us through the Berlioz La Damnation de Faust, and you stuck with us through Gounod's Faust that there was another one yet to come. I mean, there are, there are more operas yet, but <laughs> so far we're just doing these three. And this is Mephistopheles by Arrigo Boito, an Italian. Yes, an Italian. And I would say the craziest and most entertaining Faust yet. I'm going to go ahead and lay that down. That, you know, if you stuck with us this long, there's a treat in store. Yeah, this is very different from those other two French operas. This is Italian and it doesn't just deal with the first part of the Faust story that Goethe wrote. Yeah, it really extends the story and adds this incredible prologue that uh, you can hear underneath our voices right now. It focuses much more, as you can tell from the title, on the character of Mephistopheles, the devil, whereas the other versions were much more focused on the love story between Faust and his love, Margarita. So yeah, the the focus of this one has really shifted. And I think to the better. I think this is a, a really interesting version of the story. It's a real philosophical study, I believe. In fact, one of the things that I found very interesting in looking into this was the journey that the creation of this opera took. Boito wrote this and had it performed as his first opera at the age of 26 in Milan at La Scala. Very impressive for your very first opera to be performed at La Scala. He was quite the prodigy. He was accepted into the conservatory at Milan as a very promising musical student. And if you know anything about Boito, you know his main mark on history is not as a musician. It's as a literary man. He is, he is mostly known as a librettist, primarily for the work he did for Verdi, which we can talk about a little bit more later, but he, he was a very talented man in a lot of areas. And he was, he was interested in so many things and had quite a philosophical bent as well as great capabilities in music. I mean, just as a, as a contrast, for example, Verdi was rejected from the Milan Conservatory when he applied. A generation earlier, but still, I mean, this is an incredibly talented man and he knew how to impress the people of the establishment when he needed to. But when this premiered for the first time in 1868, he was age 26 and it was a failure. Too ambitious. That's tough. You're so excited you got your first opera and it bombs. Well, he tried to do everything because mm-hmm. he he had so many interests. He had so many talents. He wrote the libretto. He wrote the music. He conducted. He directed. He did it all because he, he had a, a very all-encompassing vision for how he expected his opera to come out. And he, and he really had a message to give. And I think that's part of what appeals to you about the the focus on the devil. Um, in fact, part of the reason it bombed, but part of his vision was that the opera was not only a five-act opera with a prologue and an epilogue, 
in this first incarnation. I mean, currently, the, the definitive version that we play now is four acts with a prologue and an epilogue. But the original one had five acts, prologue, epilogue, and it had a preface, a spoken preface, where three actors came out playing the role of a composer, a critic, and an audience member. And it's like a little mini play where they discuss the subject matter of the Faust story and talk about Faust as a universal artwork and how it really talks about the universal condition. He was trying to do it all, Boito. He had big ideas. Yeah, and you can see that even in this version that's obviously pared down. You can still see how much he's trying to do and how philosophical he's trying to be. I remember reading when I was when I was researching for this that the the original version when it first premiered finished at midnight, <laughs> too. So he he held his audience hostage in this grand fashion. Five and a half hours. Yeah, no, they they were not happy. The audience. That's part of the reason why they were furious with him. Well, you can you can tell that that he's somebody who put a lot of thought into everything except how an audience experiences an opera. <laughs> It's so true. It's so true. Well, by there was there was a, a, a an extensively reworked revision that premiered in 1875 in Bologna, so significantly later, 1876 in Venice. That's the definitive version where he changes Faust to a tenor, more traditional role for Faust to be a tenor and pairs it down to a mere four acts plus the epilogue and the prologue. <laughs> it's, but but it, it retains a lot of that philosophical mm-hmm. feeling that he originally had. He had to bow a little bit to public, public pressure. And it was popular. It was never as popular as Gounod's Faust, but, but it was still popular. Well? So this prologue isn't just an overture. There is a scene in this prologue. Tell us about it and let's hear a little piece of music from it. Absolutely. So the prologue, very fittingly, begins centered on Mephistopheles himself. So our other versions that we've seen have focused on Faust first, but this focuses on Mephistopheles. He is in heaven, and there's this beautiful chorus of angels praising God. And depending on how this is staged, it can be glorious or it can be a little bit atonal and strange which is how the version i saw but he basically makes this bet that he can win the soul of faust so this is a lot like the book of job where god and the devil are arguing about if this one truly righteous man can be can be made to curse god I think this is a reference to the Job story where Mephistopheles has decided that he can convince this one guy, Faust, to um, to give up his soul and God accepts his challenge. So that is the prologue. It's this really elevated, we're in heaven, mystical creatures arguing with each other over the soul of one man. And so the piece that we're listening to right now We are focusing on the choral piece, this chorus of angels, which is a really beautiful chorus piece to start us off.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Mephistopheles by Boito, another take on the Faust story. I'm Pat Wright, and I'm joined by Kathleen Vanderwill, and this is our third go at this Faust story, this, the, the story of the, the devil corrupting a man, making a bargain so he can have his soul and drag a few others down with him. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get it this time. Third time's the charm. We're going to really understand why he sells his soul to the devil. <laughs> Good. I, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. ready. I feel like I've spent I put a lot of time in on this one. I know. I know. At this point, we can teach a seminar on Faust. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is um, this is an interesting one. I know I've said that before, but the focus shifts to Mephistopheles a lot more than in the previous versions. And one of the things I find so fascinating about this version is you can really see the change in time period. So we talked about this a little bit on our last our last Faust-related podcast, that it seems like this gets revived every 20 years or so. There's a new opera about Faust. And mm. this one is 1870-ish, which is pretty late for Romanticism. And I think you can really see the influence of the end of Romanticism the field of psychology has started to sort of be a thing. Not quite yet, but we're, we're getting into, into Freudian territory not too long from here. We have, there are people named alienists. There are psychiatrists, this very early form of psychiatrist at this time period. And the focus on the mind is really apparent in this one. Oh. And when I think about how different it is from Gounod, Gounod's is really a romance. It's much more focused on the relationship between Faust and Margarita, and it's much more typically romantic, I would say. And my understanding is that Boito was not a fan of, of Gounod's version. No, no, he that, wasn't. He felt that Gounod had not had not covered the topic adequately, thoroughly, or done it justice. There's so much more meat in the story mm-hmm. that was left untouched. Yeah, and I love the Gounod one. It is beautiful, and I like that Margarita gets more interiority and character. But I, I understand what Boito is trying to say there. There is a lot more to talk about in terms of what is going on psychologically and philosophically in this story. And the Gounod one really turns it into a popular romance. And so we're, we're in different territory here. We're in much more elevated territory, but that doesn't mean we're not having fun. We are having a lot of fun. And this, this next track is one of your favorites, right, Pat? Remember how I mentioned that there was a, a, a bit of philosophizing that he included before mm, the yeah. prologue in his original? Boito really felt that he wanted to delve into the philosophical with this story. And he had some written notes that accompanied the program for this very first presentation in Milan and I'd like to just quote a tiny little bit of what he put in his program notes that get exactly what you were saying. He tells us Mephistopheles, the devil, is as old as the Bible and Aeschylus. Mephistopheles is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He is the vulture of Prometheus. Mephistopheles is the doubt that generates learning, the evil that generates good. Wherever the spirit of negation is to be found, there is Mephistopheles. And he references Job, and he talks about Shakespeare, and Falstaff, and Goethe, 
and he and he also ultimately says Mephistophele is the embodiment of the eternal no addressed to the true the beautiful and the good so there wow there are some of the ideas that he's trying to get us to ponder during this opera that he presents no wonder they hated it <laughs> he gave them homework <laughs> and he kept them there until 1:30 in the morning no wonder they hated him um, but we love it we love it here on opera for everyone that is fantastic that we have his vision right there laid out of, of what he wanted people to see that's fantastic yeah he he really he had he had ideas that he wanted to to get through. So what's up next in, in Act One here? So we are finally going to center on Faust. As I said before, we started with Mephistopheles this time, but we open Act One with Faust and he is talking with his pupil Wagner and they are- No what? relation to the composer <laughs> Wagner. No, even though I, I could have sworn there was, just a coincidence. <laughs> very common German name. They are watching from afar the celebrations of the peasant folk. It is Easter Sunday. Everybody has turned out in their best and is celebrating. So there's a religious undertone already, of course, in the sense that it is Easter, the time of resurrection and new beginnings. That is when Mephistopheles is going to begin his assault on Faust's right, that's soul. A, that is a common thread uh, among all these mm-hmm. three presentations that we've seen in these three operas, La Damnation de Faust. Faust in this one. Yes, it is. And in what we're about to hear, Wagner and Faust are talking about what they're seeing and nature and trying to look at this site from a philosophical perspective. And they feel themselves to be very separate from what they call the vulgar people. And they are a little aloof, one might say. But... I have to say that although their singing is beautiful, it's a lot more fun to listen to what they call the vulgar people. (laughs) Shall we then? Yeah, let's do it.
is opera for everyone and we have just heard Faust and his student Wagner telling us how wonderful they are and most recently the populace enjoying themselves dancing and having a grand old time. Faust and Wagner start to think that someone is following them. They Mm. keep seeing this shadowy figure and they determine there's this man who's dressed as a monk. So continuing our religious theme. I was going to say that that is a little misleading. A monk, mm, mm-hmm. yes, yes, um, a um, a wolf in sheep's clothing, we may say. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they realize he's following them, and they discuss what is going on. Who is this mysterious friar? And they get this whiff of brimstone off of him. This sort of evil 
this that surrounds him. They smell the badness. They do. Mm. And this reminds me a lot of, in Gothic literature of the 19th century, there are many instances of evil monks. This is a, this is a, a theme in Gothic literature, especially oh. sort of, especially trashy literature as we would consider it today. So there is a, a novel called The Monk that is all about this, that is about a monk who makes a deal with the devil so that he can pass into a woman's bedchamber and watch her undress. Oh no, 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 no. Well, you can but you it, can you can see why the matrons were were afraid of their young ladies reading literature like this. It's it's a bit racy. But the the figure of the mysterious evil monk it, this is not the first time it has appeared, so it's interesting to see it appear in this opera. Well, this is late 19th century. Yeah, exactly. So this would have been a recognizable figure to the audience. It's interesting that it's in an Italian opera. Obviously, Italians are much more comfortable with Catholicism than the British, and usually this would appear in British literature, that there's a, a fear of Catholicism about. But in this case, I think it, it is much more a, a wolf in sheep's clothing motif, where Mephistopheles is hiding in plain sight. Yes, but it, it is worth mentioning with Boito. Yes, he's Italian, but his mother was a Polish countess, and Boito had sort of a, a pan-European mm. outlook to, to the consternation of a lot of the Italian traditionalists. He considered himself wholly Italian. He's educated, as I mentioned earlier, at the Milan Conservatory, but he also believed that the Italians should expand their horizons and take in all of the good things that Europe has to offer and, and revive and, and be willing to change things up, mix things up anew, for which he was criticized quite a lot, actually. So he's not a traditional Italian. So after they talk about how this mysterious monk is following them, Faust sings about the evil that he is feeling, this evil presentiment that is in the air. Mm. A lot of foreshadowing here.
So that was Faust singing about his uneasiness about this mysterious monk that has been following him. And right at the end there, the monk reveals himself to be Mephistopheles. Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So now Mephistopheles and Faust encounter each other face to face for the first time. And Mephistopheles sings about who he is. He explains himself to Faust. And this fits in well with the quote that you read about about who Boito envisioned Mephistopheles to be.
for everyone and that was Mephistopheles letting us know what he's all about and what about that whistling that was that was not pretty no it's a it's a harsh sound it's it's a violent sound almost right it even it even says violently in the libretto mm-hmm. and it comes right after all that no I am I laugh at everything and I say no it's it's that whole concept of negation mm-hmm I am the son of darkness, he says, and uh, I want you to be my partner. And Faust is not at all concerned about the fact that the devil has shown up on his doorstep. He's excited. He's interested to see what, what this is all about and is very interested in the pact that, that Mephistopheles is going to offer him. And yeah. this made me think, now that we have seen and talked about three different versions of this story... Each one has a different way of talking about why Faust enters into this bargain. So we talked a little bit about how in Gounod's Faust, he's about to kill himself because he's old and his life is over. He feels like he's wasted his life. And, right. and Mephistopheles shows up and offers him almost a second chance to, instead of spend his life with his nose in a book, he gets to experience life. So it's about privileging experiential knowledge over book learning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And in The Damnation of Faust, it's more that Faust has not been able to learn enough, that he wants more knowledge, and he's exhausted everything he can learn. And so he's, he's begging for, for more knowledge. But in right. this, it's really, really privileging that experience over reading, I would say. Faust wants to experience the world. He wants that kind of knowledge. He wants the the chaos, the ability to whistle and call demons with your fingers. He wants the, they mention orgies multiple times in this song. Um, And we'll see more of that later on. He really wants to experience the dark side of the world. And that's something he hasn't had. And I think each of these has something different to say about knowledge and why we seek it and why we turn to the devil when we feel that we have not been able to achieve it. Well, and Mephistopheles says uh, uh, multiple times, I I will be your servant, I will be your slave. Mm -hmm. And Faust is very clear that there are going to be conditions placed on this bargain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But he's not too overly concerned about the details. Right, he believes that this is a bargain worth making, and he doesn't even really have to think about it that much. 
we are surrounded by religious imagery, but Faust is a very irreligious person in some ways. The way that he is talking about heaven and his hope of going to a better world, even though he seems to believe that those exist, he doesn't seem to care about living for the afterlife at all. He believes that what is important is what is happening right now, which really prefigures a kind of nihilist philosophy that it only matters what you do in this life and not to store up treasures for yourself in heaven. Exactly. And he's quite happy to shake hands with the devil. And the devil says, yes, I will serve you. Don't worry too much about later. Which is intriguing because after all, this is the devil. Yes, you really should worry about what's going to happen later if you've made a deal with the literal devil. They shake hands and say, okay, from tonight, we have an an orgy, a greedy orgy, a messy, greedy orgy, and let's have fun, my pal, my friend. And that's what I love about this opera. You know, (laughs) this is not, when you watch Gounod's Faust especially, it is, as I mentioned before, much more of a love story. When you think about it, what Mephistopheles has actually given Faust in these other versions of this story is the monogamous love of a good woman. That is what Faust has asked for. I love this pretty girl. She's really nice. Can I be with her? And even, and even though, then he blows it, by the yeah, way. Of yeah, of course, he does blow it. And he, you know, seduces and destroys her. But he still seems to care for her and love her for attributes beyond just the fact that she's pretty. And it's very traditional. It's a very traditional version of that story. But with this version, man, the devil is in the building. This is witches' <laughs> orgies. This is, yeah. this is, we're going to see a whole lot of stuff that I don't think you would have ever seen in Gounod's version. And Faust is, he's going to take full advantage of the fact that the devil is his new best friend. Yeah, they go a little crazy. And, uh, and Faust, again, speaking of traditional, is like, well, how do we get out of here? Horses? Carriages? What do we do? And, and the devil's like, um, I don't need that stuff. <laughs> uh, dude, I can fly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so ends Act 1. And then in Act 2, we find ourselves meeting Margarita and her neighbor Marta and Mephistopheles and Faust are there seducing these two women. So they have begun their career of living life to the fullest. And we So will... these two characters whose names we've heard from our other operas have not yet been mentioned, there have been no visions, and they are first appearing in Act 2 now. Margarita the young woman and Marta older. Yes, her, her older neighbor. Yes, that is another unique facet of this opera. Margarita is not even really hinted at early on, and in all of the other versions, that is the, the reward that Faust is, is going towards throughout the first part of the opera. Whereas now we come in in the middle of the courtship, and we're meeting her for the first time when he's meeting her. So we don't have, oh, my brother is going off to war. We don't have her other suitor, this whole backstory like with Gonot's Faust. We just go straight into this lovely quartet of courting. (laughs) 
credetelo che sia l'amor. Né mai d'un palpito, né mai d'un sogno, né mai d'un palpito, né mai d'un sogno, farsi bisogno faceva tu. Non so credetelo, non so credetelo, non so credetelo che sia l'amore, non so credetelo, non so credetelo, non so credetelo che sia l'amore. This is opera for everyone and our two randy bachelors. Faust and Mephistopheles have met up with the unsuspecting Margarita and the possibly suspecting Marta, and they're all having a lovely stroll in the garden. Yes, they are courting each other. Um, Faust is very sincerely courting Margarita, more sincerely than, than Mephistopheles, but Mephistopheles is having a grand old time playing with Marta. It is very fun to watch him enjoy being the devil, I must say. <laughs> Dear. <laughs> well, I think I think we have to have a little bit of serious interaction between the fair Margarita and Faust. It's true. And since this is Boito and I'm getting to know him a little bit, one will understand that it is, of course, going to be a philosophical discussion on the nature of religion between these two lovers. Let me guess, Margarita is a pious young woman. She is. She is a pious young woman. She is a good character. She always is in, in every portrayal, really. She is a religious person. So she asks him, tell me if you believe in religion. And he has a bit of a squirrely answer to give her. The answer is not a straight yes, I would say. Yes, and I also noticed from the track name, she says, tell me, Henry, do you believe in God? Why yeah. does she call him Henry? Uh, not a name we know him by. So no. it's a small detail, but I really like the addition of this detail that Faust has given her a false name, that he has told her his name is Henry. That is a cool little addition because it instantly puts you on the defensive as a viewer you understand that he is deceiving her from the very beginning which is different than some of the other portrayals that we've seen where he doesn't deceive her exactly he is seducing her but it's because he is enraptured by her beauty and her goodness whereas in this from the get-go he is lying to her there is no question about his his motivations here. In other words, he's always a cad, <laughs> but for short periods of time in the other stories, he believes in himself. <laughs> that is a good way to put it. It's true. And in this, he's not even really trying to, to convince anybody. Poor and Margarita. poor Margarita, always poor Margarita. She, she gets put through the ringer. But she is talking about her life to him here, her family, her little garden. She is this pure, innocent character. And the whole time that she's introducing herself to him and telling him about her life, Faust is thinking about one thing. He's thinking about getting her alone, and he tries to convince her over and over again to go off with him and be alone together. And yeah. she ultimately gives in, but her one big reservation is that 
she doesn't want her mother to wake up and know that she is that she is gone, that she is engaging in activities with this man. Right, because she shares a room with her mother. Yes. That's tricky. Of course, there is an answer. Mephistopheles has the perfect solution. He hands Faust a little bottle full of sleeping potion, which Faust then gives to Margarita. And this mm. is a, a direct callback to the original source material where Margarita puts her mother to sleep so that she can escape and spend time with her lover. And she does ask, will any harm come to my mother? She she wants assurance of course. that this is okay. And Faust says, nothing could happen to her. You Don't angel. Don't worry, sweetie. It's okay. Oh, oh man. It, we are, we're rough. foreshadowing a little bit, but um, it something is going to go wrong with this little potion. Well, let us hear the song of seduction. Sola sovente, e picciole e donne. 
with the seduction scene involving all four of our characters, Faust and Mephistopheles, Marta and Margarita. And now we've changed scenes entirely. And we're in a very strange place, Kathleen. Yes. So the the seduction has happened. And this is the morning after, I guess. And Mephistopheles and Faust have gone to a completely different place. They are on a mountain crag and they're overlooking this witches sabbath is what they're calling it and it's this revel of these witches and devil worshipers who are all celebrating their witches sabbath and mephistopheles appears to them and declares himself their god their king and asks them to bow down to him and here we really get as i mentioned before faust reveling in the fact that his best friend is the devil. This is this is some demonic stuff. <laughs> I'm with him. I'm with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he is super excited about it. So we're about to listen to Mephistopheles explaining the situation to Faust and then declaring himself king of these devil worshippers. Faust 
opera for everyone and we are in the devil's domain. Faust is there with his powerful friend and we have all the people who, I shouldn't use the word people, we have all the demons and the sorcerers and the creatures who help the devil and worship the devil and revel in the devil's powers and evil ways and We're going to end on a choral piece, I understand. Yes, so we have all of the witches start to laugh. They start to laugh at their own power, at the evil that they're going to wreak on the world with Mephistopheles as their king and their god. And there's just this chaotic scene where Faust is starting to wonder a little bit if he's gotten himself into too much but it's, he is overcome by this music, this choral music of the witches singing about their god.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Kathleen Vanderwill. Lovely to be here with you, Pat. We are doing our third take on the Faust legend. We just can't get enough of Faust. There's a lot of material here, a lot of depth and a lot of inspiration for librettists and composers. And today's composer was also a librettist, Arrigo Boito. And the opera is Mephistophele. So a real focus on the devil character in this Faust story. And before we get going back into our story, I'd like to just take a moment to acknowledge the recording that we're using today. This particular recording was made in 1957, and we have the role of Mephistopheles being sung by the bass Cesare Sieppi. Faust is sung by Mario Domenico. Margarita is sung by Renata Tabadi. Elena, who we haven't met yet, but you will soon. Floriana Cavalli. The orchestra and chorus of the Academy of San Cecilia in Rome was under the baton of conductor Tullio Serafin. So thank you all. Kathleen, now it's time to ask you please to just give us a little summary of our plot so far. Of course. So if you've been following our series, it's a pretty similar story, but focuses more on the character of Mephistopheles, as you know, in this version. So we begin with Mephistopheles talking to the angels and betting that he can win Faust's soul. Faust is a scholar and he goes down and convinces Faust that if only Faust would sell his soul to him, then he will show Faust a whole new side to the world. And Faust agrees. They meet a beautiful young woman named Margarita, whom Faust seduces, and then where we left Faust and Mephistopheles, they were being worshipped by a coven of witches on the Sabbath. Good place to leave them. <laughs> yeah, things were getting kind of crazy with them there. Mm -hmm. Well, before we carry on with our story, I would like to keep a promise that I made early in the beginning half. I mentioned that Boito, our librettist and composer for this opera, is best known to history as a librettist. He's a literary man, and he wrote very successful librettos for a number of composers, but most famously for Verdi. In fact, long ago on Opera for Everyone, in the early days, before I knew actually all that much about Boito, I referenced him when we did our show on Otello, because he was the very talented 
librettist, literary man, poet, who the publisher, Ricordi, had engaged to entice Verdi out of retirement. It had been well over a decade, I think about 16 years, since Verdi had composed an opera, that his final opera to that at that point had been Aida in 1871. And Verdi was passionate about Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare. And he hadn't actually written a lot of operas. He'd done Macbeth, but he hadn't done a lot of Shakespeare operas. And so his publisher knew he, he always struck gold when Verdi produced an opera. So if he could find a libretto that would really inspire Verdi, he would he would get Verdi to write more music. And sure enough, he succeeded with Boito pulling together a very high quality libretto. Because as we said before, even though this opera didn't succeed at first, it wasn't for lack of talent. It was almost because Boito was trying to do too much. He worked with Verdi, and by the way, in the beginning, Verdi and Boito kind of rubbed up against each other because Boito was more pan-European in his outlook and criticized some of the traditional Italian takes on things. He was even accused of being too, heaven forbid, Wagnerian because he appreciated some of the reforms that Wagner made in opera, and and I've talked about that on some of the other Wagner-related opera for everyone's that we've done, but Verdi got over it because he really liked the literary work that Boito did on Otello. They worked back and forth. Verdi never left anything completely alone. And that was followed up by Falstaff. Boito also wrote the libretto based on Merry Wives of Windsor by Shakespeare. Falstaff, that amazing character (laughs) from Shakespeare. So those were very successful operas. And by the way, their first collaboration that Boito had with Verdi was a revision. It was a little bit of a testing out between the two men. Boito revised the libretto of a not terribly successful Verdi opera originally, Simone Bocanegra. He revised the libretto and it became a much more successful opera. So it was it was a very fruitful relationship between those two. And probably the other libretto that he's best known for was Ponchielli's La Gioconda. Boito is a multi-talented man, and, and we're grateful. This opera, Mephistopheles, is the one completed opera. He had one almost completed opera, which Toscanini helped shepherd into completing about the Emperor Nero, but it didn't, didn't get completed during his lifetime. He just had so many thoughts that he could never quite get them all down on paper. That that sounds like it fits with what I know of him so far. Yeah, well, he's, yeah, his big thoughts are in his head. All right, help us out here. We have Act 3 awaiting us. Yes, so we, as I said, left Mephistopheles and Faust celebrating the witch's Sabbath, but we're going to return to a character we met earlier, Margarita. She has, at this point, been seduced and abandoned by Faust. If you'll remember, Mephistopheles gave a little potion to Faust, who then passed that on to Margarita and told her that if she gave this to her mother, her mother would fall asleep and stay asleep, and they could be together, they could spend time together. Well, now we're picking up sometime later, and Margarita is alone, and she is about to sing of what has happened to her. She has been abandoned. Her mother has died. The potion actually killed her mother and she was imprisoned for murdering her mother. 
And that's where we find her. She's in prison. She is virtually mad. And she has also born Faust's child and drowned that child in the river. So she is in a pitiable state. She is the lowest she can possibly be. And we're about to listen to her sing about her woe.
This is Opera for Everyone, and that pitiful woman we just heard was Margarita in prison for killing both her mother and her newborn baby. Poor thing, it's, it's not good to be seduced by a man under the influence of the devil, is it? Hmm, no, no, strange, but true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she, she's there, and Faust shows up after having abandoned her to this terrible fate, and he he decides maybe it's time to try to help. Yes, he, he does feel guilt for what he's done to her. <laughs> in too every, little too late. <laughs> as you have said before, and you are right, um, every time we talk about this, I like to bring up that he does feel guilt, but that, of course, does not absolve him from what he's done to her. And I think it is more clear in this version than in any of the others, partly because of that little detail that he, you know, he still never gave her his real name. Even now, she calls him Enrico. She knows mm. him as Enrico, even after she's born his child and is in prison. But he he returns to her, sees that she is in this pitiable state. One of the things that I didn't mention about the witch's Sabbath is that there is a point in that scene where Faust sees an, a vision of Margarita in prison and sees that she is bloody and cast down. And he says to Mephistopheles, what is this? Why, you know, oh my gosh, this is the woman that I'm in love with. What's going on? And Mephistopheles lies to him and says, oh, that was a false vision. Don't be afraid. Sometimes you just see things when you're at the witch's Sabbath. And so now that vision of his has come true. Of course, this does not shake his faith in Mephistopheles for some reason, but he goes to Margarita and tries to offer some form of comfort. They they sing about what could have been, but there's no way that he can, can apologize for this. There is no making up for what he's done to her. Right. He wants to plan some sort of an escape, but she's a little gone mentally. Yeah. Yeah, that is another unique way in which she's represented in this opera. She is quite mad at this point. In La Damnation de Faust, I feel like she was more exalted and holy and, oh, she's still so good and her goodness will preserve her even though she's in this terrible situation. But in this, it's there's no real indication that she is anywhere in reality right now. She's just completely gone mad, which... Of course she would. <laughs> She's about to talk to the devil, so it makes sense. Right. So this next song that we're going to hear, Faust is trying to comfort her, and she goes along with it for a little while mm-hmm. until Mephistopheles' voice is heard. Yeah, she is able to literally come face to face with the devil. There's no indication before that Margarita knew that Mephistopheles was the devil. She seems to have just considered him Faust's friend and companion. But when Mephistopheles appears here, she seems to know that he is this evil force. Instantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, she's gone mentally, except for the real serious stuff is the clarity is there for her. Right. In fact, the fact that she's lost her mind, I think, is what allows her to finally see him for who he really is. Here 
Listening to Mephistopheles by Arrigo Boito, and the devil's getting a little angry with this situation. Yes, well, his protege, Faust, is experiencing some guilt and some sadness over what he's done to this poor innocent woman. And the woman herself, in a, in a moment of clarity and strength, has turned on the devil and accused him of what he's done to her. And we're about to hear her really have her moment, I think, in the opera. Margarita is a, I feel, we all feel very bad for her. She's always this character who's there really to suffer. She's this pure, beautiful woman, and she suffers in in every way imaginable for a woman. She loses her baby, she's abandoned by her lover, she's responsible accidentally for her own mother's death. But Boiteau gives her a moment none of the other operas have given her. Gives her the moment to to say, literally, you disgust me to Faust, which is what we're about to listen to. It's spectacular. And and one of the things that's very interesting to me, we talked about the fact that this opera was too long in the beginning and it had to be reworked. This piece by Margarita right here was added to that final revision, that definitive piece, and we love it. so. Yeah, Good work, it, Boito, you know. Exactly. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's it's a really necessary part of part of the opera. When she finally says, Enrico, you disgust me, it's not operatic singing, it's operatic speaking, shouting. Yeah, it brings everything to a halt. This is not meant to be pretty, this is a huge just shout of emotion. And it's really the last we hear from her, too, but it is the time she can finally find her voice. Oh right, because it's as she's dying and Right before that, Mephistopheles has said she is condemned. Faust doesn't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Mephistopheles is happy. He feels that like he's reaped another soul. But as soon as she says that, she rejects both of them. Then we hear the celestial voices. We hear the heavenly host. And her soul is declared to be safe and to go to God. <laughs> Mephistopheles is like, okay, Faust, follow me. Yeah, too much of this stuff. Let's let's go have some fun. Listen for that as you hear the end of this piece we're about to play.
opera for everyone and we're listening to Mephistophele by Boito and if you've listened to our previous operas based on the Faust story episode 76 by Berlioz La Damnation de Faust and episode 78 Gounod's Faust you know that they end when Marguerite dies but we still have one more act plus an epilogue. So things are a little different with this act. We enter an entirely different realm here. Where are we, Kathleen? Well, we've we've been transported both back in time and to a completely different continent. We are in ancient Greece, all of a sudden. Another instance of Mephistopheles really flexing his power and doing more. As I said, that's one of the things I like about this opera, that Mephistopheles gets a lot more to do that's more, um, that's kind of cool, honestly. Like, if you're going to hang out with the devil, time travel, glad we got to do that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's also, it's also Boito taking advantage of the part two of Goethe's story, Faust. Yes, both part two of Goethe's Faust and Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, which is an even earlier version of this story. That's from 1594. They both have Helen of Troy as a central character. So Helen of Troy is the wife of Menelaus. She is the reason the Trojan War was fought. She is one of the characters in the Iliad. And she has been an object of fascination. I'm going to use the word object very deliberately there. She's been an object of fascination for poets ever since Homer's Iliad. And she shows up in Dr. Faustus, and then in Goethe's Faust Part Two, as this perfect woman. She is the distillation of womanly beauty. She is the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, because she's the woman who causes all the trouble because her beauty is so great. Mm -hmm. Men go to war. It's it's worth... Yeah. There's an expression about her, isn't there? Yeah, so this comes from Dr. Faustus. Some of you may have heard the face that launched a thousand ships. Well, that is in reference to Helen, and it is from Dr. Faustus. So that's not from ancient Greek literature? No, it is from Christopher Marlowe's version of the the Helen story. He says, Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Ilium being Troy there. And that has, has made its way, sort of like Faustian bargain, has made its way into our our lexicon. So the Helen story, Helen is always this object. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. She's always a prize to be won. And if you don't win her, well, then you're kind of pissed off about it and you want to steal her back. And so it makes sense that Mephistopheles sends Faust to get Helen. Mephistopheles says to Faust, sorry about Margarita. I'm sure you're feeling sad about that, but let's distract you. I'm going to send you off to find the most beautiful woman in the world and you can, you can love her. 
Helen is always this. She's always a prize. She's always a prize to be won. She's always an object. And this is, is no different. So we have this strange addition to this opera, as, as you said, it's not in the other operas, but it is in the original source material. And Helen is going to sing about this story, introduce herself to you and sing about her time in Troy during the Iliad. Yes, and she she originally presents herself. She's got a handmaiden and there are all these other serving people around her and she's grand and she's haughty. And in some productions, there's also going to be a ballet that Mm -hmm. is included because that can be a fun thing to add to an opera. Good time to do it. But ultimately, she's going to turn and reflect on the destruction of Troy, because that's also part of the story. Troy is defeated, ultimately, in this war. Yeah, Troy is burned, and and many, many see it as ultimately Helen's fault, because she's the one that causes the war. Yeah, depictions of Helen have varied over time. She is often depicted in the way that she presents herself first in this opera as haughty, and above it all, she's beautiful. She's she's part goddess. That's part of why she's so beautiful. But there have been more nuanced portrayals of Helen. And I think I see a little bit of that in Boito's depiction of her. In Euripides, the Trojan women, for instance, she is a much stronger character. She's able to speak for herself. She talks about herself as partly a victim. There's been more of a re-examination of her character as time has gone on. And I see that Boito gives her layers. She's not just this object haughty Helen. She's also a woman who experienced a great trauma, a great tragedy, and a lot of loss. Well, let's turn to this song that she sings about the trauma of the destruction of her city. And Faust is going to be witnessing her reliving this. And he's going to find it kind of intriguing, I'm afraid. Oh, 
listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Mephistopheles by Boito. Well, we're with Helen of Troy, and Faust has just listened to her anger at the destruction of Troy, and Faust is not really worried about her city and all that she's gone through, but he is entranced by her beauty, as so many men have been. And he bows before her and says, Oh, eternal beauty, you are perfect. You are the pure form of beauty. I prostrate myself before you. Yeah, so back to back to Helen as the ultimate object of beauty. Mephistopheles was correct that this is the right way to distract Faust. Faust is totally entranced by her, and... Helen appears to be very entranced by him as well, immediately. Yeah, her mind immediately leaves her troubles behind. (laughs) The thing about Helen that's interesting is she often, in, in the Trojan women, she offers this excuse for why she went away with Paris. She says, I didn't have any choice. Aphrodite was standing next to him and said... This is, this is your guy. What am I supposed to do? Refuse the goddess of love? She, she gave him to me. And I think there's a similar idea here where Helen cannot resist love and beauty. That seems to be her entire focus. So when a handsome young man shows up and, and says, you're so beautiful, I love you, who is she to, to say no? Well, there we have Faust with this immortal perfection of beauty. And uh, do they live happily ever after? Absolutely. 100%. This is how the opera ends. <laughs> that doesn't leave much room for our epilogue, does it? <laughs> no, no. They they do not live happily ever after. Helen is, is a dream for Faust. And it just sort of fades away. He has her. They sing their beautiful love song together. And then it's over. And... All right, well, before we move on, let's hear a little bit of that love song.
This is opera for everyone, and we have finished the final act of Mephistopheles, but that doesn't mean we're finished because there is an epilogue. But before we begin our epilogue, I, I, I have a, a little observation from George Bernard Shaw, the great cultural observer, when he saw Boito's Mephistopheles. This is what George Bernard Shaw had to say, which I think resonates with what you and I have been saying, Kathleen, but I, but I will preface this by saying I do quite like the music that I've been listening to. So no criticism on my part for his music, but I think opera's for everyone and I enjoy it all. 
But this is what George Bernard Shaw had to say. The whole work is a curious example of what can be done in opera by an accomplished literary man without original musical gifts, but with 10 times the taste and culture of a musician of ordinary extraordinariness. Ordinary extraordinariness. That does sound like George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> right, so you can just make what you will of that, but <laughs> I'm a compliment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> a backhanded compliment, as he liked to give. I think so. I, you know, he was an accomplished musician, but he was even more accomplished in the literary arena. And I guess that's something that George Bernard Shaw would recognize and compliment. Indeed. All right. So in our epilogue, we are going to return to some of the, the deep thoughts. In fact, the first line that Mephistopheles has in... The epilogue is, come to me, great thoughts. Yes, so we're at the end of Faust's life. We've skipped forward to the end of his life. He is dying. He is now facing whether or not his soul is going to go to hell with Mephistopheles. And he is reflecting on the life he's lived when he gave his soul over to Mephistopheles. He talks about the love that he's had, that he loved the virgin Margarita, and then the goddess Helen. He was able to experience the world, but he also talks about the pain that came with that, that experiencing life and, and gaining that experiential knowledge also came with pain and trauma. And I'm afraid I don't care that much about his pain and trauma, but Margarita's pain, of course, is one of the, the she's the great sacrifice in order for him to have his experiences. He's at the end here asking, was it all worth it? Well, let's hear how Faust ruminates on the end of his life and how Mephistopheles interjects with his own thoughts about what Faust should be thinking about. Oh, 
opera for everyone and we are coming to the end of Mephistopheli by Boito and Mephistopheli is ready to collect his prize. He has spread his cloak out and invited Faust to step on board. He's ready for Faust to become his his slave in the underworld. Does Faust accept? Surprisingly no. Faust has decided that that at the last moment he is going to pray and ask for God's forgiveness, just as, as Margarita did. He prays to the angels. He prays to God that he will be saved and refuses to go with Mephistopheles for the first time since the beginning of the opera. And true to the source material, the Goethe source material, his soul is actually saved. He is forgiven by God because he asks for forgiveness. Yes, and even before that, he... He recognizes that he has, in this experience with the devil, had interaction with a real woman who sadly he he brought misery to. He had experience with an ideal woman who turned out to just be a dream and decided that that was 
not wise or real or good mm-hmm. and decides to devote himself to, to the good, to the betterment of mankind. And it seems the only way to do that is in his prayers to God, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting ending. I would say it's kind of unexpected. I would have expected this to have been a Faust gets dragged down to hell ending with the way this ha- opera has a much darker tone than the other versions. But Faust asks for forgiveness. He may not deserve forgiveness, but he certainly needs it. And because God's forgiveness does not discriminate, he is forgiven. Yeah, the asking of forgiveness is powerful, very mm-hmm. powerful. And those those heavenly hosts, the choir, pop up frequently throughout this opera. Those voices are ever-present. Yes, it reminds me a little bit of when we did Werther and the voices of the children singing Christmas songs or, or, or practicing for Christmas songs runs throughout. It's a thread that connects you to innocence, to God's mercy. And you see that again here, that the voices of the angels are always there if you're, you're willing to ask for them, if you're willing to, to beg their forgiveness. Yes, and, and I do love <laughs> the last words of Mephistopheles in this opera. I am assailed by a thousand angels. The Lord has triumphed, but villainous evil hisses on. In other words, you haven't heard the last of me. <laughs> And we never, ever have. Mephistopheles will always be looking for another Faust to make his bargain with. So watch out. Always. Well, once again, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us on Opera for Everyone. It is so great to be here and to to close out our trilogy on Faust. Yes, absolutely. And uh, everyone, please enjoy the final piece of music from Mephistopheles by Arrigo Boito. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanduil. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera Opera is is for for everyone. everyone.